It was December 2019, and Bin Jiang, his wife, and their two young children were planning a trip to China, just in time for Chinese New Year. Bin is in his mid-30s and lives in Calgary, Alberta. He grew up in central China and says most Canadians had never heard of his hometown until last year. His wife and kids traveled there ahead of him. Bin had to stay behind for work and planned to join them a few weeks later. He was looking forward to reuniting with his family and seeing his parents. On January 22, 2020, he departed from the Calgary airport and landed a couple of hours later in Vancouver, where he waited for his connecting flight to Beijing. Bin sat in the departures lounge, checking emails on his phone, and then glanced up at one of the airport televisions as a breaking news report flashed across the screen. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We begin tonight with drastic measures being taken to try to contain the outbreak of a mysterious pneumonia-like virus. Chinese authorities are effectively putting a quarantine on an entire city. That city was the first epicenter of what would become the worst health crisis in modern history. I heard the news that they were going to lock the whole city down within seven to eight hours. And so I had to call my wife, my parents. Just the thought of me being separated from my family, from my kids was really scary. But, you know, while you were in it, all you had to do was find ways to, to get to them. So that's exactly what I did. Right, so people are trying to get out of Wuhan. You're trying to get in to Wuhan. That's right. I'm Jeff Semple, senior correspondent for Global News, and this is China Rising, Episode 4, Wuhan. On New Year's Eve in 2019, three weeks before Bin saw that news flash at Vancouver Airport, health officials in his hometown of Wuhan published a news release on their municipal government website warning about a cluster of cases of pneumonia linked to a local seafood market. Within days, Bin's family in Wuhan started hearing rumors that this virus was different. We first heard it, like I said, in, in the beginning of January through friends, uh, some relatives that work uh, at the hospitals. We um, started to hear about the, these rumors about a SARS-like virus spreading in the city. Certainly, we, we had no idea to what extent this thing was going to grow into. For three weeks, Chinese officials and state media claimed the virus was only spreading through contact with infected animals, despite a flurry of posts on Chinese social media demanding to know whether the government was covering up the truth. Then, on January 20th, Beijing revealed the full picture. They were dealing with a mysterious new coronavirus that was spreading between people. Authorities across Asia are on high alert after Chinese health officials confirmed the virus could spread through human contact. By January 23, 2020, Wuhan was overwhelmed. The Chinese government responded by cutting off the entire city and its 11 million residents from the rest of the world as they scrambled to contain the spread of an unidentified illness 
temporarily named 2019 NCoV. It soon became better known as SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. Patients now in isolation, all trains and planes out of that city halted just tonight. Ben watched the breaking news in horror and then boarded his flight to Beijing. My only concern, concern was my wife, my parents, my kids, and I only wanted to get them out of the city. And so I had to call my wife, my parents. Um, it was 2.30 in the morning um, in Wuhan at the time. So I had to basically wake up my whole family and ask them to leave the city. As his family and thousands of others tried to get out of the city, Bin was trying to get to them. So uh, once I landed in Beijing, I went to the front desk and I said, hey, um, I have a flight scheduled to go into Wuhan. And then they basically say, what? And I said, I'm flying to Wuhan. And they said, no, you're not. Uh, you know, the whole city is shut down. Nothing is flying in or out. Um, so either you're stuck here you have to, or you have to fly somewhere else. So Bin caught a flight to a city nearby and drove the rest of the way eventually reuniting with his family. And his hometown was unrecognizable. It was it was scary, to be honest with you. I have never seen the city like that. Wuhan was locked down for 76 days. Some of those trapped inside witnessed terrifying scenes. Videos showed crowds of sick, desperate people trying to force their way into overwhelmed hospitals as medical staff struggled to find ways to treat them. One video recorded on a smartphone inside a Wuhan hospital showed a medical worker collapsing on a chair in the hallway and sobbing uncontrollably, screaming, I can't take it anymore. Another video showed a man in his 60s lying dead in the street just a block away from hospital. Bystanders and paramedics were afraid to get too close. Eventually, medical staff in full protective hazmat suits arrived and took him away. For days, Ben and his family hunkered down at his parents' home, but eventually he had to leave to buy groceries. At the time, it felt like a life and death decision. It felt like I was going to a nuclear zone. You know, um, I had to dress myself up in, in layers, of masks, two masks, goggles and face shield and all that kind of stuff. Um, and just to go buy grocery. And we only did, did that twice. And if you go to a supermarket at the time, um, it just felt like this is out of movie. movie. It's nothing you ever expected to see in real life. After a couple of weeks, Ben heard the Canadian government was preparing to rescue Canadians trapped in Wuhan. A friend told us that the, the Canadian government was preparing to repatriate um, citizens, uh, Canadian citizens from Wuhan. And, and then so we decided to uh, get in contact with them. Um, but, um, you know, first came the bad news because my wife and I are not Canadian citizens. And we are still permanent residents. Although our children are Canadian citizens, 
They basically told us that we were not qualified to board the plane.、Um, so that took us a lot of、uh, communication back and forth to work with them, and before finally being approved to get on the plane. Right. And when you got when you got that approval, how what was that like? How did you feel? I was happier than winning a lottery. On the morning of February seventh, after more than two weeks spent trapped in Wuhan's lockdown, the plane carrying one hundred and seventy-four passengers, including Bin and his family, touched down at a military base in Trenton, Ontario, a couple of hours' drive east of Toronto. I was huddled just outside the gates to that base with a few other journalists to report on their arrival. The passengers were screened for symptoms three times during their twenty-hour trip, and they spent the next two weeks in quarantine on the base. If one of them had developed symptoms, they would have been transferred to the local hospital in Trenton. And I remember interviewing people in the community, some of whom were concerned about the arrival of a plane full of people from Wuhan, potentially bringing this scary new virus with them. Ben says that fear followed them. All the way back to their home in Calgary, I kind of instantly became、uh, famous among the Chinese community here because I was the guy that was going to、uh, rescue families from Wuhan and then bring the virus back to Canada. So I was kind of、uh, <laughs> on a hot spot back then. Right. So were you seen as the good guy for rescuing your family or the bad guy? I was the bad guy. <laughs> Thankfully, neither Bin's family nor anyone else on that flight from Wuhan became sick. But the virus spread quickly around the world, and within weeks, COVID nineteen was everywhere. On this Wednesday night, the coronavirus officially reaches pandemic proportions. On March 11th, 2020, the World Health Organization officially declared a pandemic, citing more than 120,000 known cases in 114 countries. Hospitals in the United States and Italy were utterly overwhelmed. Canada recorded more than 7,000 deaths from COVID-19 during the pandemic's first wave from March to June 2020. Long-term care homes were hit particularly hard. But by the end of April 2020, while Western countries were reeling, the city of Wuhan was breathing easier. After months in lockdown and thousands of deaths, Wuhan declared itself COVID-free. You know, I mean, everything is back to normal. That's Hong Xu. He's a world-renowned pianist who lives in Wuhan. Xu has performed all over the world, including in Canada, and he was traveling in the United States when Wuhan was locked down in January 2020. Three of his colleagues at the Wuhan Conservatory of Music died from the virus. Xu finally returned home a couple of days after the lockdown ended. Now, when I went back to Wuhan, there were still not many people on the streets, and then, and then it was like. Two weeks later, it was like back to normal. Everybody was out, and and、um, yeah, it was it's just very exciting. Given the Chinese Communist Party's reputation for fiercely controlling the narrative, 
Wuhan's official figures, including its death toll of around 3,900 people, should be taken with a large serving of salt. According to a recent analysis by The Economist, the true death toll is thought to be around 13,400. That's more than three times the official Chinese government figure. But while Beijing may be downplaying the number of cases and deaths, Wuhan and China's success overall at stamping out the pandemic is difficult to deny. While much of the world struggled to contain wave after wave of the pandemic, Wuhan saw its spread of new cases slow to a trickle. Xu says anytime there was a single reported case of COVID-19, Chinese authorities cracked down with a heavy hand. I actually really do credit the Communist Party uh, on the controlling the pandemic. I think whatever they have did, done since, I guess, February, it's been just very effective. Anyone who went anywhere was required to scan an ID code on their smartphone, which the government then used to track potential cases. That code is is monitored by the government. And uh, let's say if someone got COVID, they will somehow detect everybody who's around that area for, let's say, a certain period of time. And then all these people would have a different code. We all have like green code. But if your code turns into like a yellow, then you're banned from going to anywhere, basically. Yeah. So we all have this code um, on our cell phone. And it sort of monitors everybody. Basically, you have no no privacy, but it works very well for for this pandemic. While Canadians who'd potentially been exposed to the virus were typically told to quarantine at home, China forced residents into massive stadiums and exhibition halls, which were rapidly repurposed into quarantine centers. Videos on social media show Chinese police literally dragging people who'd been potentially exposed or had a fever, kicking and screaming out of their homes and into quarantine. By the summer of 2020, Wuhan was roaring back to life. Crowds packed into concert halls, food markets, offices and schools. The Chinese Communist Party declared victory. Ahead of the one-year anniversary of the Wuhan outbreak, the Chinese government unveiled a new sprawling exhibition built on the site of a former field hospital. It recounted the government's purported triumph over the pandemic. Inside the large hall, the walls were lined with photographs of medical workers alongside a giant imposing image of Chinese President Xi Jinping. There were recreated scenes with mannequins dressed as doctors in biohazard suits and others in military uniforms arriving with medical supplies. There was even a futuristic hologram of medical staff moving around a hospital room. This visitor told Global News that she lives five hours away on a train, but that she came especially for the exhibition. I'm really touched, she says. I feel that our country is really awesome. 
Our government does a good job, another woman says. People in China are conscious that we must work together and that the good of the people is more important than any one individual. However, in the West, people often prioritize their own opinions. I think that's why the pandemic is out of control in the West. Comments like those reflect the Communist Party's control of the pandemic narrative, portraying China as triumphant and Western liberal democracies as chaotic. But the impressive Wuhan exhibition is also remarkable for what's missing. There is no mention of Wuhan's whistleblowers, of how doctors like Li Wenliang first sounded the alarm by publicly warning that the virus was spreading between people in December 2019, a month before the city was locked down. At that time, Chinese officials were still insisting that it could only spread from contact with infected animals. Police ordered Dr. Li to stay silent. He later became infected himself and died from the virus. The exhibition also fails to mention citizen journalists like Zhang Jian. She recorded videos inside Wuhan's hospitals, revealing the true scale of the outbreak. One year later, in December 2020, Zhang was sentenced to four years in prison. And there's another part of the Western pandemic narrative that the Chinese government seems particularly interested in challenging. COVID-19's origin story. Chinese state media has been busy promoting a number of different theories, claiming, for example, that the virus originated in Europe and arrived in Wuhan on a shipment of frozen seafood. The seafood hypothesis does not make sense to me, and I suspect that's probably more politically motivated. That's Angela Rasmussen. I'm a virologist and research scientist at the Vaccine and Infectious Diseases Organization at the University of Saskatchewan. Angela spends her days studying viruses, including coronaviruses, like the one that causes COVID-19. The idea that, that this was frozen seafood um, imported to China from elsewhere, from Europe, is pretty unlikely considering the closest relatives to SARS coronavirus to our circulating in the wild in bats in East Asia. So I think that, um, again, we can't disprove that hypothesis. It's not off the table, but I just think that that is by far the most unlikely hypothesis. Chinese officials have also suggested without evidence that COVID-19 is an American disease that might have been introduced by members of the United States Army who visited Wuhan in October of 2019. But Angela, like a lot of her colleagues, believes the most likely theory is a natural zoonotic origin, that COVID-19 transferred from a bat in China to a person, either directly or through another animal. If it's a natural origin, what, what people do need to understand is that this is like searching for a needle in a haystack in a field full of haystacks that are also full of other needles. It's really, really really hard to find proof of natural origin. What we need to do is find essentially a, a very close relative or a direct ancestor of SARS coronavirus 2. She says that can take years, even decades. And in the meantime, another origin theory has recently been receiving a lot of attention. 
There are growing calls now to investigate the possibility of an accidental leak from a lab in Wuhan, China. The Wuhan Institute of Virology has been studying coronaviruses in bats for over a decade. And it's located just a 40-minute drive from the wet market where the first cluster of infections emerged. But for months, that lab leak theory was widely ignored, with the notable exception of U.S. President Donald Trump, who fiercely promoted the idea, which was then seen as an effort to distract from his own handling of the pandemic. But recent U.S. media reports have thrust that theory back into the spotlight after a leaked classified U.S. intelligence report found that three researchers at the Wuhan lab had been treated in hospital for coronavirus-like symptoms back in November 2019, just weeks before the outbreak. Following those revelations, U.S. President Joe Biden announced an urgent investigation that will look into that theory as a possible origin of the disease. Michael Imperiali is a virologist at the University of Michigan. So I think all of those things have kind of said to me, yeah, you know what, we cannot rule out at this point a, a lab accident. Um, but again, as I said, whether it was a lab accident or, or a natural zoonosis, I think that um, it was a natural virus. In other words, the virus may have transferred to a human inside the Wuhan laboratory. But he says there's absolutely no evidence to suggest the virus itself was cooked up in a lab. There's been some uh, suggestion that this is a virus that was deliberately engineered in a laboratory. And, and I think that the data supporting that are, are not good. And, and that theory, in my view, has been thoroughly refuted. So if this virus did come out of a laboratory, it was because that laboratory was studying a naturally occurring virus. And then someone in that lab accidentally got infected and then was able to, to spread it. While scientists and politicians argued about the origins of the pandemic, Chinese businesses were capitalizing on the chaos. In 2020, countries around the world witnessed countless businesses close and record high unemployment. But China was the only major economy that actually grew last year thanks in part to the sudden, unprecedented demand for personal protective equipment. Even before the pandemic, China supplied most of the world's PPE. But last year, those exports skyrocketed. Around 95% of Canada's imported face masks came from China, costing around $1.5 billion. These days, China's most popular pandemic export is its COVID-19 vaccinations, including one vaccine that was supposed to be earmarked for Canadians. We've learned that we need to be much more careful in our collaborations with China. That's Margaret McQuag Johnston. She's a senior fellow at the University of Ottawa and specializes in China's science, technology, and innovation policies. For more than 40 years, Margaret was a champion of China. She believed the country's economic prosperity would eventually spur democratic reform. And she fiercely promoted those beliefs while holding a number of senior management roles with the Ontario and Canadian governments. And people like myself, who have been friends of China for many years, are now saying that China has changed. And China is no longer the 
country that we once fell in love with. During the final years of her career with the Canadian government, Margaret sat on the Canada-China Science and Technology Committee, and she helped to lay the groundwork for what would become Canada's COVID-19 vaccine collaboration with a Chinese company called CanSino Biologics. Yeah, so Canada has had a partnership with CanSino uh, to make vaccines, and they really um, have used Canadian technology as the core to start their vaccine development. Canada had given the Chinese company access to a Canadian biological product, a key ingredient in producing the potential vaccine. I want to start with some news on the medical front. Health Canada has now approved the first Canadian clinical trials for a potential COVID-19 vaccine. The plan was for a Canadian research team to work with CanSino to run the first Canadian clinical trials in May of 2020. In Canada, it was billed as our best hope out of the pandemic. It could be Canada's first shot at getting a vaccine for COVID-19. We are able to have the most advanced vaccine candidate in the world. But within days of announcing the deal, the Canadian government learned there was a hitch. China had blocked the shipments it was supposed to send to Canada for the clinical trials, initially blaming bureaucratic issues and paperwork. But by August 2020, after three months of delays, it became clear that the Chinese government had no intention of sending the vaccine to Canada. Though Beijing denies it, Margaret believes the move was further retaliation for Canada's arrest of Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou in December of 2018 at the request of the United States. Really, one has to conclude that the more engagement we have with China, the more places there are that they can uh, turn the screws and uh, really put us at a disadvantage While Canada waited for its shipment, China was instead sending the CanSino Biologics vaccines to Russia, Saudi Arabia, and Pakistan. Chinese COVID-19 vaccines have now been shipped to more than 80 countries, including a large number of developing nations in Eastern Europe and Latin America. A Chinese government spokesperson says China is doing its part to positively promote the fair distribution of COVID-19 vaccines across the whole world. Others take a more cynical view. Hello and welcome to this edition of Axis Asia. Coming up, China's vaccine diplomacy is trying to boost the country's image abroad. Vaccine diplomacy as a way to help polish China's image, not as a target for criticism of how it handled the pandemic, but a savior to lead the world out of it. So you can see that they're trying to attract uh, uh, partnerships and and, uh, friendship with those countries and trying to punish Canada at the same time. Some Chinese vaccines have faced criticism for their lower efficacy. While Chinese state media has responded with criticisms of its own, promoting disinformation aimed at undermining trust in Western vaccines, such as Pfizer-BioNTech. We've seen a lot of uh, evidence from the Chinese government um, basically denying uh, that COVID came from China, blaming the U.S. military. Uh, We've picked up uh, the Chinese basically spreading uh, falsehoods about uh, Western vaccines that they can't be trusted. Kyle Matthews is an expert in online extremism at Montreal's Concordia University. 
and he's now part of a team investigating how COVID-19 conspiracies are spreading. He points to Chinese state media articles published online in English blaming the U.S. Pfizer vaccine for the deaths of dozens of people in Norway. Now, there's no mention of how Norwegian health authorities investigated and found no direct link to the injections. Instead, the article calls for the Pfizer vaccine to be suspended for elderly patients. We're uh, looking at the internet where China is basically saying that, you know, Canada's response to COVID shows that the Chinese model is better, democracy doesn't work, uh, and also questioning any of the, vac- of the vaccines that, are, that have been approved in Canada. Matthew says Beijing is using the COVID chaos in Western democracies as a propaganda opportunity, pushing the narrative that the pandemic has proved the superiority of its authoritarian model. Its government is capable of cracking down on even small outbreaks with tremendous force, while suppressing any criticisms and disregarding any notion of individual freedoms. And Beijing's relative success in curtailing the health crisis is garnering plenty of praise from ordinary Chinese. Bin Zhang, the Calgary father from Wuhan, whom we met at the beginning of this episode, says that last year, as Canada's COVID-19 caseload climbed, he actually considered taking his family out of Calgary and back to Wuhan. To be honest with you, yes, we did. We did contemplate on, you know, maybe flying back that way um, because, you know, it'd be safer for our kids, safer for us. But on the other hand, you know, Calgary is where our home is. Bin says his friends and family in Wuhan didn't just abide by the 76-day lockdown because they had to, but also because they believed in it. I'm not sure if like we have what it takes to to get to the China uh, Chinese level because I personally believe that uh, it, it's because of the the high level of uh, personal engagement that got uh, China to where they are right now, right? Uh, because everybody buys into the idea. They never had any anti-mask protests. Um, everybody buys into the idea of personal hygiene, social distancing, masking. And so they were able to uh, to eliminate the, the virus in a very uh, short period of time. I think just the way they did it is pretty, uh, pretty amazing. When the world's first COVID-19 outbreak struck Wuhan in January 2020, rattling the country and its government, Few could have imagined China would emerge the victor. The moral of the story, according to Chinese officials, China is rising, and the pandemic has only accelerated its ascent. Coming up later in China Rising, we'll explore how the Chinese government's handling of the pandemic and questions around COVID-19's origin have also revealed a dark underbelly in Canada and the United States of hidden hate. Stomped on, spat on, murdered. All these incidents happening since the beginning of the global COVID-19 pandemic in Canada is not immune to the hate. I heard from behind me him shouting, China, Japan. COVID-19 and anti-Asian racism coming up on China Rising. This podcast is written and produced by me, Jeff Semple, with producers Dila Velezquez and Kamya Razavi. 
Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Editing assistance from Stephanie D'Souza. You can help me share this podcast by telling a friend. And don't forget to rate and review China Rising on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find me on Twitter at JeffSempleGN. And you can email me at jeff.semple at globalnews.ca. Thanks for listening. And please join me next time on China Rising.